Good morning. In case you're wondering right in, bring my Bible up here. It's, I need big print now, so I have everything printed in front of me. <laughs> you know, sometimes your eyes get old. It's good to be with you this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, and we pray that you would apply it to our lives this evening, and may we have that definite fellowship of the Spirit among us. In Jesus' name, amen. When I meet God, I'm going to slap him. That probably got your attention. That was said to me when I was at West Bend Blood Center by the phlebotomist who was preparing and getting things ready for me. I forget how we got on the subject of God, but I have never forgotten that statement. I had presence of mind not to correct her theology that morning, and, but I did ask why she felt that way. And she said to me that she had lost her mom and a sister and another loved one had cancer. She had been up to her eyebrows with loss and grief and emotional pain. I thanked her for her honesty and agreed with her that it's very hard to manage all that emotional overload. And it certainly is, isn't it? I genuinely appreciated Pastor Nate's sermon back in January, which I watched after the fact, uh, since I was occupied that day at Grace, um, on lamenting. If you didn't hear it, I hope you go to the website and go back and take a look at that. Uh, Lamenting is that honest crying out to God when we hurt, isn't it? And Nate did such a good job as he described that and encouraged that. We might not be very good at lamenting to God. I think we're probably much better uh, about uh, complaining to each other when we have the opportunity and to to anybody who will listen. It's also possible that we've never understood biblical lamenting as Nate described it and encouraged it. You ever heard the expression, the elephant in the room? Yeah. It's generally understood to mean that there's something very obvious in front of in front of us, and uh, we are reluctant for various reasons to avoid the matter, and we don't talk about it. And avoidance is a common uh, response to grief situations. Uh, we find ourselves often not knowing what to say, so we avoid the subject and sometimes avoid the person, and we don't say anything. And managing grief is, uh, after losing a loved one is very challenging. And as uh, Kevin mentioned, my wife, Marcia, went home to be with the Lord uh, six years ago this April, um, just a month from now, um, after an eight-and-a-half-year battle with uh, breast cancer. I, I, not battle, journey. I, I choose to use the word journey because that's what it was. We've been married just short of 46 years, and as uh, Kevin mentioned, Open Door has been or had been our uh, home church for probably more than 10 years. I was involved with Wisconsin Church Extension at the time, and my ministry was itinerant, so when I wasn't traveling someplace on the weekend or on Sunday, we would be here. And if I was traveling and the family wasn't able to come with me, they were here. So we have uh, a deep uh, love in our hearts for Open Door Bible Church. The Lord's taught me a lot in the last six years, and I can certainly testify to his grace in my life. 
But as a congregation, we have faced, and I say we since I feel part of you, uh, a difficult and unusual situation, really. It's only been a little bit more than three months uh, that Pastor Seth uh, went to be with the Lord. And if you're attending uh, Open Door since then, uh, maybe you didn't know Seth personally, but likely you've become aware of his passing. His death was certainly a shock to all of us. Uh, that Sunday morning word came uh, to me uh, the, about the EMS people working with him that morning, and it moved through the teen Bible study chat group, um, which uh, my granddaughter Lily, who was immediately in touch with her mom, my daughter Bethany, who texted me to pray for Seth. And I remember just a few minutes later, I was on my way home from church that morning. I was right in front of St. Peter's Catholic Church on Highway A up in Adel, just east of Adel, and when I got the call saying that Seth was with the Lord. And I was, I was shocked, uh, as I know you were, and I had some questions in my mind. Uh, you know, why, Lord? You know, what's going on? These guys don't grow on trees. Um, we need these guys. Um, you know, I'm sure you probably feel that way as well. You know, it's very unusual for a young pastor actively involved in ministry to be called home from heaven. It does happen. Um, I, I know that because I read in my uh, Moody alumni news about various uh, people who go to be with the Lord. Many of them are ancient and, <laughs> you know, in their 90s. Uh, no offense, Andy. <laughs> I'm grateful to be, for your being 100. <laughs> but, and some of them are 103. And, you know, but, you know, it's amazing. Every once in a while there's somebody in there, a missionary, pastor, um, going to be with the Lord, young young person. But more typically... Uh, pastors retire, they leave the church they serve to maybe move away, go to live near the family that, they're, uh, that they have, and, you know, then the Lord calls them home. So, you know, that, that instance of uh, churches losing pastors uh, to death in activity or in active ministry is relatively rare, I think. Um, so that uh, is an unusual situation. But then we face an individual loss, don't we? And, but also there's a corporate loss because we're all in this together. Uh, we all felt that. And as a group, many of you had some level of involvement with Seth. Obviously, the exception would be those who have come since late December. But, you know, every relationship we have is unique, every single one. And that being the case, it means that all of us grieve a little bit differently. And yet there's that corporate sense of the grief as well. And uh, the level and degree depends on the depth of the relationship, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, some people would be very deeply affected by Seth's pathing, and maybe others not quite so much, and then maybe some not at all because maybe they didn't know Seth at all. So that unusual situation feels very strange. It is bewildering. It is sad. We feel sad for Seth's family members and for one another and for ourselves. And we may even cry today. Um, I remember uh, learning that uh, our bodies are 60% water and sometimes I leak. <laughs> so, and then I had a, a, somebody I was doing a, a memorial service for and uh, the guy was talking to me about his tears. And he says, uh, my, my eyes sweat. And I thought, that's a good one. I'll have to remember that. But, uh, you know, not only um, do we have Seth's loss to us, but we also may have faced, and maybe you 
have faced the loss of a loved one in the last few months, the last couple of years. Um, and that compounds the grief. That's another angle because you're grieving that loved one as well as Seth's loss. So with un this unusual situation, there is what I call the unknown factor. Um, we don't know where each other is on the grief journey and in the process of grieving and healing. And that may be true not only in relation to Seth, but in relation to our own loved ones and that compounding of the loss. As my kids were growing up, and they would certainly testify to this, and as they, especially as they moved into their teen years, uh, we often, or I can't say often, but we had to say things to them, please be patient with us as parents. We haven't been here before. <laughs> it was a situation we just had no experience with. You know, you get to the kid's age, and all of a sudden you're into a new thing. And even though you have multiple kids and multiple teens, the, the situations change and the times change and things like that. So you haven't been there before, and that's the case here. I've been in ministry here in southeastern Wisconsin for almost, or not almost, more than 48 years. And this is the first time I've been in this situation. And I, I let you know that to, realize, or to help you realize that this is unusual for you as well. There's not a lot of churches that would be able to say, we've got experience with this. So you're, you're kind of pioneers, okay? And that's just the nature of the case of life, isn't it? We are pioneers in that respect. So what's the point? Well, the point is we need to be patient with each other and exercise forbearance. Forbearance, in my estimation, is that spiritual shock absorber when we have things come up that aren't sin, but, you know, they get to us. And we have to have that shock absorber to, to you know, smooth out the bumps. And then kindness. And I'm sure you're doing all these things because you're that kind of church. Uh, I, I know that you are. You've got a good reputation in that respect. But that needs to continue. And I appreciate uh, Kevin mentioned praying for your leadership team. It is challenging for them to manage the individual grief as well as lead and shepherd all at the same time. Um, and, but please, having said that, don't feel that you're troubling them or will make them feel worse or sad by coming to them with your concerns. You know, God has equipped your leadership team with general, genuine spiritual strength and grace and the spiritual strength and wisdom to help you. I don't know how many times people have said to me, oh, pastor, we don't want to trouble you with our problems when you've got your own. Well, you know, God has equipped us to do what we do, and I want to encourage you with that. Um, if you've got needs, you really need to talk to your, your leadership team, your pastors. They will be able to help you. Well, now we come to the elephant in the room questions, and then some of those are the why questions. Anybody ever ask why to God? And, you know, you can look in the scripture, and there's a number of places that people are asking why or uh, other questions. And one of those questions is, well, why didn't God answer our prayers that morning? And another question, why did God take Seth, or why did God take anybody? Why did God allow my loved one to get sick or maybe die or have an accident or get murdered? Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we ask why. Why the hurricane, the tornado, the earthquake, the fire? Those are tough questions. And I'm sure you know the answer. What's the answer? Well, he's got everything under control, but the answer is we don't know. We don't know the specifics, do we? And that's tough. 
We don't like to be un, un, uninformed about those things. One of the best books that I've read was written by Bruce Baker, an acquaintance of mine. He was a professor and pastor, a professor at Calvary University down in Kansas City. And uh, he battled or journeyed with ALS for some years. And during that time, he wrote this book. Uh, it's one of the best books I've seen. It's a very easy read. Um, difficult to digest sometimes, but the book has chapters on why this, why me, and why now. And those are certainly questions that we ask when we get trouble, get in trouble, right? And we we need that book. Um, he has, I mean, there's many other helpful chapters as, as well, and, and some good ch questions at the end of each chapter to work with. But I, I would encourage you to get that book and read it. One of my dear friends, Brian McIntyre said that we need to build a theology of suffering before we suffer. You know, it's, when you're in it, it's a lot more difficult to uh, navigate learning about it. So, you know, get this book. It, it gives you a framework uh, for suffering and pain and, and, and some of the unanswered questions. And I believe that Bruce takes you as far as he can legitimately and logically and biblically on these questions. So I highly recommend it. Then there's also the who questions. Who can I blame? You know, when something goes wrong, we tend to want to blame somebody, don't we? And that being the case, um, you know, we could say, well, who can I take my anger out on? Or who's responsible for my pain? And those things happen. And, and that is true. That goes back to the opening statement. When I meet God, I'm going to slap him. Somebody was going to take the the brunt of that dear lady's pain that day, or that she'd like to. And then anger is a God-given emotion. It pops up quickly when we're in pain, when there's injustice. You know, injustice is something that's not fair, it's not right, it's legally, morally, ethically, or simply according to me. If I have a judgment that this isn't fair, even, it's, even though it doesn't have anything to do with anything else, or when I don't get what I feel entitled to. That's those, those things pop anger up in emotion. This is particularly difficult when there's an accident or some carelessness that results in an injury or death or an injustice. And anger is a natural emotion that God has given us that can motivate us to actions either positively or negatively. Anger crosses into the negative and destructive territory when it becomes bitter and vengeful and I will punish you for hurting me, defying me, or not giving me what I want. It's even possible to be angry at God, isn't it? And we see that in the scripture sometimes, you know, that somebody's angry at God. Let me warn you, though, uh, and people have done this uh, to their own hurt, you know, if you shake your fist at God and say, I'm going to get even with you by living a sinful life, guess who's going to hurt? You. You're not going to hurt God by doing that. Well, although he'd be grieved, but you will be paying the price, not him, as to living in sin. So don't do that. We'll probably come back to that. Well, we will come back to this as we look at Job's life in just a few minutes. And then the how questions. How can I deal with this? How can I deal with this loss, this injury, this sickness, or this upset in my life? You know, those, that's a good question. And the other question with that, how do I deal with somebody who's going through a loss or sickness or pain or crisis or problems? How can we uh, manage that and be helpful? 
And you might be thinking at this point, Paul, you have all these questions and no answers. Well, maybe we'll get to those, okay? Um, ever been in a blinding snowstorm or some bad fog? Um, it's really dangerous, isn't it? And just a few miles north of here, uh, many of you probably remember the really bad accident, the worst traffic accident in Wisconsin history because of what? Fog that morning. It's so disorienting, you can't see anything around you, you don't know what direction you're going, you have no idea of your location. I'm thinking, I, I've never been in California, I've never been on the Golden Gate Bridge, but if I saw fog like this, I don't think I'd want to be on that bridge. You know, it's just blinding, isn't it? Pilots um, need to have instrument training and ratings so they can fly solely by using and trusting their instruments in bad weather. Many of you have flown, you know what that's like. I'm sure you've probably been in bad weather situations. But they have to trust the instruments. And it's the instruments that get them through and to take off and land safely and fly safely. When you can't see anything, that disorientation is going to really scramble you. So when we're in the fog, we face a couple questions, or we have to assess where we are. The first assessment is, I do not know the answer, but something can be known and the information is available. Second is, I cannot know the answer, information is not available to me. And obviously the second one is harder to deal with. But when we're faced with, I cannot know the answers, I have a couple choices. One of them is a negative choice. I can throw a tantrum overtly, and I'm, I'm not talking about necessarily stamping your feet and laying on the floor, kicking and screaming. However, we can imprison ourselves in the misery of bitterness, demanding to know the answer. And I'm not going to be satisfied until I have an answer. And you, if you do that, you wind up uh, making everybody around you miserable as well. We can choose to be bitter at God and people. We have to have comfort my way, and that, you know, that is the thing. You know, some people can't get past that, and that is sad. Um, they will suffer for that, and many people will suffer with them. You can also throw a silent tantrum by withdrawing into your own world, rejecting God, rejecting the people around you, and this is different than solitude. Um, you need solitude once in a while. It's not just being with people all the time. But this is different. This is that tantrum that says, I'm just going to not hurt anymore because I'm just going to rule everybody out. And that's a pretty sad situation as well. And those are choices that people make. And I don't think people realize that having answers may not necessarily bring comfort. You know, having an answer is not necessarily going to solve our problem. The second possibility is accepting the fact that I cannot or will not get the answers to my specific questions, and I need to move back in the direction of what I know for sure. When you're in the fog of the unknown, we need to back up and go for what we know for sure. I understand that, uh, and I've never been that lost, but I understand when you get lost in the woods, you're supposed to stay put until come, somebody comes and finds you. Well, we need to stay put and kind of anchor our... our um, selves into that truth that we know for sure. And that's important. God does have the answers. Our, our trust has to be in him who knows the answers, who loves me. And that gets us to faith. And I don't know about you, but we have to come to that place where we realize that faith is a, a choice. It's not a feeling. 
It is a decision to believe and trust God. That's not a feeling. That's a choice. That's a decision that we make. And you may have to talk to yourself out loud, I need to trust God. I need to choose to trust him in this situation. I'm sure that you know uh, James 1, 2, and 3. Let's read it together, will we? Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come to your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. You're probably saying, I am not interested in endurance. I just want the pain to go away. I don't want to hurt. Right? When I think about endurance, I think of playing soccer in high school. We had a German coach who played professional soccer in Germany. And he was under the impression, or <laughs> not the impression, he was under the feeling and uh, decision that if you started the game, you should be finishing the game which meant you really had to be able to run a lot. You had to be in shape. You had to be able to endure the whole game. And soccer is a fast game. So uh, he had us running and running and running some more. At the end of a few weeks of practice, his last thing before we got to go to the showers was you had to do a mile in six minutes. That's at the end of practice. It would be interesting to do it at the start of practice. That would be easy. But at the end of practice, after you did the wind sprints and all the other stuff. But you know what? I was probably in the best shape in my whole life those years because of the endurance. But it didn't happen all at once. It is this and this and this each time, right? It takes time to build up that endurance. And since endurance is connected with the testing of our faith, I'm wondering if faith is a muscle. You ever thought of that? It's what it says, isn't it? When your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. It sounds like running, doesn't it? <clears throat> is my faith strong to get the answer I want, or is my faith strong in God who is wise and loving and powerful? My Heavenly Father has the best plan for my life, even though I don't get the answer I want or I don't get the answer I like, even for a while. I forget when I heard it, but I heard some years ago when taking a test, the teacher's silent. You know, sometimes we don't hear from God like we'd like to, and we get upset that we're not hearing from him or we're not getting the answer to prayer that we're looking for. And that is a challenge. There's no question about that. Fortunately, God says, well, it's an open book test, and you can work with a friend. Anybody ever take an open book test? Sure. And they're about as hard as the regular tests, aren't they, or harder sometimes? And you can work with a friend, and that's why you're together as a church, because you've got the open book, namely your Bible. You're called Open Door Bible Church. You can work with each other. You know, whatever, whatever you're facing the fact that you have people around you that may have experience, that may be able to point you in the right direction spiritually and biblically, uh, where do I go for the answers? That's what's good about that. <clears throat> Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. 
For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That being the case, do we choose to believe that? And are we content to say, Lord, even if you did explain to me, I probably wouldn't understand it if this verse is true, and it is. Think about that. If God says my thoughts are so higher, so much higher than your thoughts, even if I told you what I'm doing, you probably wouldn't understand it. But we'd like to know anyway, wouldn't we? Remember Paul praying three times that the Lord would take away the thorn in the flesh? And he says, each time God said to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So I'm, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ to work through me. No, he had to believe that. That was a choice that he chose to believe. And God says his grace is always available to me. I will believe him. It will sustain me in whatever circumstances I face. You know Psalm 23, 1, what does it say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Okay? That's something you have to choose to believe. Sometimes it feels better than others. But you know, faith is based on evidence and a track record of trustworthiness in whoever we're trusting. And God has a good track record. If you haven't experienced it personally, you can read it in his word, and I would encourage you to write some things down. Some people call it journaling. Uh, you might write it in your prayer notebook or whatever. But as you see what God has done in your own life, that becomes your track record of your relationship with God, and you can trust God for the next thing then. makes a big difference. We also need to know God as he describes himself. I would encourage you to read Isaiah 40 to 66. Take some notes on what you'll learn about God and what he says about himself. It's a tremendous section of verses in there. And many of you read the Psalms, which is very good, and I would encourage you to read Psalms of Asaph and the sons of Korah. Start at chapter Psalms 70 and read on to Psalm 90. That's the Psalm of Moses. Uh, you'll find some really good things. And, and these guys who wrote those Psalms uh, struggled with some stuff, and you'll, you'll note that in there. There's, there's one psalm, and I forget which number it is right now, but there's got to be at least uh, eight questions in a row. And then uh, you get a little bit further, and you see that confidence come out of his choice to, tru- to choose, I mean to trust. And you might say, well, I already know God, but my question is then, do you really know God as he describes himself, or do I know a God who I constructed in my own mind of how I think he ought to be? You know, there's a difference there. And sometimes we, we just make God in our own image, and we think he's like us, and he's not. And we need to move away from that. Take what God says in his word. Now let's meet Job. <clears throat> this is a guy who actually had the opportunity to talk to God. And uh, when I meet God, I'm going to say, <laughs> is right there in the Bible. And he had that opportunity. So let's take a good look. I'm sure you know Matt Redman's song, 10,000 Reasons. When the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. Time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before me. Let me be singing.
when the evening comes by Isaac's wedding. That's easier said than done, though, isn't it? And it was, definitely. It's a new day dawning in us somewhere in the Middle East. By evening, Job had lost 11,000 head of animals. Stolen or killed by lightning, his entire business operation and wealth was gone. Most of his employees were murdered on the job. His 10 children died when the house collapsed due to a tornado. And sometime later, he became very sick. We don't have the timeline between the time that he had that business loss and the time that he got sick. The time that he, well, he, he lost his children the same day of all the animals dying, but we don't know how long it was between the time, that time, and the time he got sick. But listen to what he says about his illness. How bad was it? Well, when the four friends came, it says they scarcely recognized him. His body had changed so much that he was in such bad shape that they barely could know who he was. They saw that his suffering was too great for words. In chapter 7, it says, I too have been signed months of futility, which may give us a hint that this was not a couple weeks of illness. This was months. We don't know how many. We don't have the timeline. He says, lying in bed, I think, when will it be morning? But the night drags on. I toss till dawn. I waste away like rotting wood, like a moth-eaten coat. My relatives stay far away. My friends have turned against me. My family is gone. My close friends have forgotten me. He attacks me with a storm, repeatedly wounds me without cause. He does not let me catch my breath, but fills me with bitter sorrows. My spirit is crushed. My life is nearly snuffed out. The grave is ready to receive me. In chapter 10, he says, I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Let me, char- let me tell me the charge you're bringing against me. Chapter 13, I would speak to the, directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. And then he turns to his four friends there, the three friends that were talking to him mostly at that time. He says, as for you, you smear me with lies. As physicians, you're worthless quacks. If you would only be silent, that would be the wisest thing you could do. And then he talks about God. If I only knew where to find God, I would go to his court. I'd lay out my case and present my arguments. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown. I would tell him exactly what I've done, and I would come before him like a prince. Wow. Now, he was, he was really going after God there, wasn't he? He felt God was being unfair to him. That was really the charge that he was bringing And he wanted to meet God personally. Let me talk to the manager, so to speak. Uh, He felt innocent and God was treating him unfairly. And we've talked about these verses here. Then the Lord shows up in chapter 38. And this is an interesting chapter because it is, or actually the section of 38 to 41, it's the longest statement by God directly to anyone in the entire Bible. And it's usually the one we don't know about. But then it says, what, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, which a bit noisy. I mean, if that's a tornado, 
Can you imagine talking over a tornado? Um, I'm, I'm almost wondering what that would have sounded like, but I think I would have been scared. But he says, who is this that answers my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Okay, Job, pop quiz. Can you pass God's science test? There's about 70 questions in between 70 and 76, if you, depending on how you count. But what were the questions? Well, they covered earth science and oceanography and meteorology and astronomy and animal kingdom science. And God takes a pause in chapter 40. He says, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Job replies to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. This is the same guy who says, take me to God's court. I'll, I'll lay out my case. I'll talk directly to him. What was his test score? Zero. Now, I've failed some tests, but I don't think I've ever gotten a zero. I've gotten zeros on some stuff. How about you? Job failed miserably. Couldn't answer one question. So let's take some observations. God, God was not obligated to account for his actions to Job, and he never told them why he suffered as he did. Interesting. That was never on the radar screen in that conversation between him and Job. God is not accountable to us. We are accountable to him. He's not obligated to tell us anything He's given us a lot of information in his word. This is a hard thing to swallow, though, isn't it? God is okay with our lamenting, our crying out, and our pains physically, emotionally, spiritually. God never slapped Job down for his lament. Uh, remember, though, Job in his complaint was, you're not treating me fairly, and I'm upset with you. Uh, but he was, God never scolded him about the lamenting. You know, at the end of the day, if you can't answer God's questions on his science test, which was about his wisdom and his power, we're not qualified to run our life, but God is perfectly qualified. That's an amazing concept. Who's qualified to run your life? Who's got the best plan? And even though we don't like to hurt, if you read the Bible cover to cover, you'll notice that suffering is included. A lot of it's included because of sin, but a lot of it's included because God wants to demonstrate who he is to us and have that relationship that his grace is sufficient. But think continually, though, about who's qualified to run your life. And that brings us to the next statement. Our faith in him as our wise, loving, powerful God is more important than our understanding to the wise and the wherefores, the reasons and what's going on in our lives. We might not understand, but we can always have faith. That's the issue. And that's the thing that is hard to swallow conceptually as well as practically because we have pain in our lives, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. And we don't see clearly God's plan. He doesn't lay the whole plan out for us. I'm grateful for that. You know, it's better to walk day by day by faith. And yes, God does give you some clue of what's coming up, but um, the better part of it is let's live by faith. 
and not foolishness, but faith. Now, why are we even talking about death and grief? Go back to chapter one, or not chapter one, chapter three of Genesis. Why do people die? Because of sin. That's why the suffering, that's why we are where we are. And if death is that universal, and it is, everybody dies. Only two people never did, Enoch and Elijah. Everybody else has in the entire history of the world. That's why we are where we are today. That's why we feel the pain of losing people. God has provided a marvelous answer to that pain, though, isn't it? And that was the death of Jesus, to die in our place, to satisfy God's wrath as well as God's requirement that if you, if you sin, what's the wages of sin? Death. God reversed that by saying you can live when you trust Jesus to be your personal Savior. I, I don't know where you are spiritually this morning, and maybe you've never made that decision. And again, that's a faith decision. I choose to believe that Jesus died for me personally, took my penalty, and is, is offering me eternal life and the forgiveness of my sins when I trust him. Again, that's a decision. It's not a feeling. And I hope you've made that decision. I like this picture. Um, I would encourage you to make something like it. Put it on your mirror or your uh, cupboards in your kitchen. When God says, I made all of this out of nothing, trust me, I can take care of you. Doesn't that lift you up? <laughs> but I hope it does. You look at creation around you and say, God, you made all this. I can trust you. Please do. But make a picture like that. It would encourage you. How do we navigate grief personally and as a congregation? You know, this is just a thimble full of um, stuff that I've learned, uh, both practically as well as through grief share. The shock and numb phase uh, may be subsiding, but brain fog, brain fog lingers much longer. There's no timelines to grief. Uh, you don't get over it. Uh, it's not something you get over. Uh, but we do move past the, the shock and the numbness of losing a loved one. <clears throat> but that's uh, something that we have to just realize. Men and women manage and process grief differently, and that's just an awareness thing. It's not men uh, have, there's not a woman's way to grieve, there's not a man's way to grieve. It has much more to do with God's wiring men and women differently, and that's just a general statement. So these, these things are just true kind of across the board. Uh, it is simply an awareness. You need to be patient with each other. <clears throat> uh, grief cannot be hurried. I mentioned this earlier. My definition of grief is it's a severe upset to our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual equilibrium. You get knocked off balance. And if you remember uh, those little toy gyroscopes, yes, I see some shaking of the heads. You know, you can spin that thing and set it there and knock it over, and it, it may go way over here, but it'll always come back to level and, and perpendicular or uh, vertical. You know, that's what happens when we get into a grief situation, no matter what loss it is, it, it knocks us over, it knocks us, spins us around. But, you know, by and by, you know, we can come back to um, vertical again. You know, it, it will right itself, but it is work to get there. It is trusting God. It is relying on his grace. It's those things that help us. 
Having said that, there's a level of expectations that we need to have, and that sense of grief is different and unique depending on our relationship with the person, and the time for healing uh, will be accordingly. And as a congregation, uh, losing Seth as one of your pastors, um, and maybe you've lost loved ones recently, that compounding of grief, uh, we don't know each, where each other is on that grief journey. But the point is, you're not going to move forward as a unit. Everybody's not going to grieve in the same time frame, okay? That's uh, something that we need to be patient with each other because everybody with a different relationship with Seth or their particular loved one is going to have a different time frame to be grieving in. And that's where that patience comes in. Um, especially new people who didn't know Seth and on the other end, uh, people who were very close to him. Uh, that relationship uh, who, with whomever it is is going to be determined uh, or takes will determine the length of time it takes to heal. Family dynamics is a big thing as well. If we have a family who, uh, that is intact, communicating, good relationships with each other, you know, that process can go a lot smoother. On the other hand, if the fam family is dysfunctional, a lot of conflict going on, you know, that's going to cause a lot more issues with grief. Some of you have probably been through that. Um, not every family is, uh, is intact as far as uh, being able to communicate and all those types of things and move through emotionally. Uh, I, I see as a pastor a lot of that kind of stuff happening. And then there's the new normals. How do I live life without my loved one? My husband, wife, parent, grandparent, child, friend. And new normals develop over time as we adjust to the loss in each life experience. It takes time because you have to go through all the life experiences to make the adjustments. And normally we think of the firsts and we, we go to the holidays in our minds. Well, you have the first holiday. You have the anniversaries of your uh, loved one's passing and things like that. But there's all the everyday things and the seasonal things that take place in our lives. It is the everyday elements of living. Those things take a while to become normal to us. It's not just uh, after a few months or even a year. It takes more time than that as sometimes. And it can be a bumpy time. Uh, as we face those things. Um, I noticed uh, the advertisement for the softball league. You know, that's going to be a uh, bumpy time for some of you guys who have been in involved uh, on the softball team um, this spring because of uh, Seth's passing and the, inf uh, the uh, involvement that he's had over that time. I appreciated what Haddon Robinson said uh, some years ago. He was one of my professors in seminary. We're tied to our loved ones by thousands of emotional cords that must be cut one by one, making them memories. And that's true. And we don't know what memory is going to come up or what cord that emotional thing is. Uh, and that, that's what takes the time. And we're not talking, uh, again, about weeks or months. It is a mistake to try to avoid painful memories because it will prolong the healing and adjusting to the new normal. Many of you have probably had physical therapy. Is physical therapy fun? Nope. <laughs> I had physical therapy for my shoulder. Um, and I went to the physical therapy department up in, in uh, Sheboygan, or, yeah, or Plymouth, rather. And uh, the young lady who was working with me hands me something about the size of a spring leaf in a car. And she says, shake that like this until the ends move and do that for so many minutes. She set the timer and boy, did that hurt. 
But I got the full range of motion back in my shoulder and no more pain and things like that. But it's painful to do that. Well, on the soul therapy, it's going to be painful as we remember things about our loved one and do things, go places. Marsha and I used to go up to the river walk in Sheboygan and we'd park uh, at the flagpole at the circle and we'd walk up to the bridge, cross the bridge and walk down to the Coast Guard station and then back again and then we'd go to Starbucks or Culver's or someplace. And you know, the first time I did that, first few times I did that, I probably cried part of the way. And, um, but that's, that's okay, I mean, it was healing and I, I didn't stop going to places that we'd gone to. That's the, that's the hard parts of grief, going back to the places where you've been. And, you know, you don't erase those memories. <clears throat> um, I also learned about having a good cry, and I would just suggest to you that um, you cannot cry continually. Eventually, your body will stop crying. And there are times when we have to kind of shut it off and, and go on and do something. But if you have a good cry, it means I've cried until my body naturally stops. Those things are healing. And I would encourage you to give yourself the permission to cry that hard. Uh, it is important for your well-being. And then finally, perspective. What's the dominant feature of Swiss cheese? The whole. Great. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> you passed that test. <laughs> yes, the whole. But remember, there's also cheese, right? We are aware of the holes, but there is cheese to enjoy. And if we, if we hold the cheese up to our face like this, we look through the hole and all we see is what? The hole. If we hold it out here, we see the cheese and the hole. That helps the perspective that we haven't lost everything. I've got friends in Ukraine who have lost a lot whether it be loved ones, their homes, their jobs. You know, it, I'm grateful for what God has given me in relation to what some other people don't have. And that perspective helps us um, not kind of implode into our own suffering, right? What blessings do we still have? And if you take a list of the blessings, there are there. God has given them to you. And it's important to remember those things. And then there's the comforters. This is not the blankets that you cozy up with on a cold night. Uh, this is uh, people who come in the ministry of presence, uh, be there in person, the personal notes about uh, what to do. You know, Paul says God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we can give them the same comfort God has given us. You know, even when we're going through difficulty, we can still be a comforter. Uh, God does want us to have this ministry, and it's not just a certain select group, um, but it often comes through friends. There's an interesting passage in Job. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, he gave him twice as much as before, and people usually say, well, look, boy, he got really a lot. But it was at a tremendous price, though, wasn't it? And there were still ten graves down the street. And plus all the graves of his employees. But then notice, and this, this verse kind of gets me. Then all his brothers and sisters, the former friends, came and feasted with him in his home. They consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. Each of them brought a gift of money and a gold ring. 
Now, what's your question? Where were they? You know, I can't read that without feeling resentful, <laughs> to be honest with you, resentful about these guys not showing up. This is the first time we hear about brothers and sisters and former friends. Well, he did mention family and friends going away before, but we, we don't have any uh, information about that. But wow, what, a, what about the grace of God in Job's life to put up with this bunch? I'm sure he forgave him. And again, we don't have the timeline as, as to how long it was before he got the twice as much before, as before back and when they had this banquet. You know, we don't know that. <clears throat> but the ministry of comfort is certainly important. This is one of another books I, I have written on your paper there, Don't Sing Songs to Heavy Art. It's an excellent book about uh, comfort, and it, it deals with so many different situations. What do I say? What do I not say? You know, people say stupid things once in a while, and, you know, don't be in that group. <laughs> but take, take time to read this. It's an easy read again, but very good. Uh, Kenneth Houck uh, interviewed and had uh, groups. 4,000 people were in, in, uh, in his uh, circle to have put this book together. So he's not talking just off the top of his head. He's really done his homework. He went through uh, the loss of his wife uh, some years ago as well. But um, he's writing from a, a real uh, compassionate heart. And I would encourage you to get that book as well. Don't sing songs to a heavy heart. So, summarize. You know, we are facing an unusual situation for you as a congregation and you as individuals. The questions that we have should drive us to God to know him and his purposes and working in our lives. And our grief is really a God-given safety valve for emotional overloads. We need to work with it, not against it. And there's a ton more to say about that. I was so grateful for... Uh, the grief share classes that I went to up at um, the Free Church in Sheboygan after Marcia died. Understanding people, but it also gave me a basic map. Um, a, uh, that would probably be the best way to put it, a basic map and a compass for managing my grief. It was very helpful, and I'd suggest it to you. Learn to be comforters. Elephants in the room go away when we talk about them. Please continue to talk. Uh, share your stories. Uh, share your comfort with each other and uh, your memories of your loved ones. Those would be important. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word once again. We thank you that you are our comforter, that you've given us the Holy Spirit as a comforter uh, to be with us. You've told us that we'd be, you'd be with us forever, and we're grateful for that. And I just pray your grace upon this congregation and their particular needs right now. We pray for their leaders as they meet and as they share memories, as they plan for the future, as they seek your guidance. We pray that you would give them your wisdom and that we would see uh, great things from Open Door Bible Church. In Jesus' name, amen.